Yeah, I definitely want to encourage you to uh, get your tickets to the uh, to the Christmas banquet. November 30th, it feels like that shouldn't be Christmas because it says November, but it uh, is one day. It's a Saturday before the next day is the first day of Advent, so it happens like right there, right quick this year. And you need to realize that that is less than two weeks away. So don't let that sneak up on you because we are right on the verge of having Christmas be upon us. Uh, it definitely is that time of year where we start to celebrate with family and friends and there's lots of visiting that takes place in our homes as part of the Christmas season. Uh, and I don't know about you folks, but one thing that's common in our house is around the Christmas time, there's a bit of an uptake in the number of times we sit around a table and play board games or, or card games. Is that a co- kind of a common thing for a lot of people around the Christmas season? Yeah, a- absolutely. And um, it's a great opportunity to spend time with kids too, especially when they start to uh, find themselves out of school with school break and whatnot to, to sit around the table, get different board games out. And I, I was kind of wondering, I wonder, what are some of your favorite board games? Know, Zach, I didn't tell you about this ahead of time, but what's one of your favorite board games to play? Settlers, any other Settler fans? Yeah, a lot of Settler fans. What, any other favorite board games? or when you're, Maybe when you were a kid, what was your favorite kid board game? Monopoly? Monopoly's a popular one. Yeah, sorry? Chess. Ooh, an intellectual among us. Yes, chess. A- any others? Sorry. I knew someone was going to say sorry. You know why? Because we're Canadian. Yes. You're with me, Mike. Absolutely. You know, it's true. Sorry is one of those board games that, that's actually often one of the first games that kids play when they're quite young. Because it's, it's quite a simple game. And after all, if you are a good, true Canadian, you have played the game of sorry. Probably even when you're walking down the street holding the door for somebody, bump into them. Oh, sorry. We're playing sorry as we go down the street at times. If you're not familiar with that game, it's very, very basic. You, you draw cards with numbers on them, and those numbers represent the number of spaces you can move around the board. And the object is to get your four pieces to travel around the board from start to the home. Now, here's where the word sorry comes in. As, as you're moving around the board, if you happen to land on an occupied space, no two pieces can occupy the same space. And so you bump that person back to the beginning. And now, when you bump them back, you have to. It's in the rules. It is required. You have to muster your most insincere, sarcastic voice and say, sorry that I moved you back to the beginning. It's funny the first time, but the second time that happens to your little sister, there's a degree of acceptance that she has about it. The third time it happens, there's really no comment made, more of a straight face. The fourth time, boards get flipped, and Christmas is ruined for everybody because of this wonderful Canadian game that we have our kids play. Well, so far in our story of walking through the book of Jonah, Jonah has been navigating himself in a direction of his choosing, away, actually, from God's call upon his life. So Jonah's a prophet, and prophets receive the word from God to go to a particular place to deliver news and a word of God to a people. In this particular case, God had called Jonah to go to the wicked people of Nineveh to call them to repent, to to turn to God. But instead of going east towards Nineveh, he goes west in the direction of his own choosing. 
finds himself on a boat. God doesn't want him to continue that direction. Sends a storm. Jonah finds himself thrown overboard. God sends a great fish we talked about last week to swallow him and to take him back in a different direction. We spoke last week about when Jonah was inside that great fish of this prayer he offers up in chapter 2 of the book of Jonah. And this prayer is basically his, his perspective on things. And as we learned, there's a degree of, of selfishness and self-righteousness that seems to be enduring within Jonah. To the point where when the fish gets to its destination, it vomits him onto the land. And essentially, God has now bumped him back to the starting point. Sorry, not sorry. It's where he needs to be. And that's where we pick up our story today. After God bumps him back to the starting point. And we read this in Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. We're not told where Jonah got dropped off. But I can tell you this, it was not near Nineveh. How do I know that? Because Nineveh is just as landlocked as Alberta is. Nineveh is right in the middle of this large landmass. So it's likely Jonah got dropped off back in Joppa, exactly where he left from in chapter 1. And we learn in this that God is the God of second chances. That he renews his call with Jonah. He says, go and preach the word. I have been unwavering in my commitment to preach this word to them, Jonah. You've gone other directions, but I'm also unwavering in my love and concern for you. In fact, the words that he uses for this call in chapter 3 are exactly the same words he uses in chapter 1. This time something different happens, though. This time we read in verse 3, Jonah obeyed the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, it's safe to assume Jonah obeyed the Lord this time because something had changed. What had changed? Well, Jonah understands that this call was no longer to be perceived as a choice. This was a command. God had proven in numerous ways already in the first two chapters of the story that he wasn't really giving Jonah an option. You go this way, I'm going to send a storm. You keep going, I'm going to send a fish. The fish is going to take you all the way back and I'm going to bump you back to the start and give you a chance to try again because he's the God of second chances. Remember last week, we talked about how God had Jonah's attention. God had Jonah's reluctant obedience, but he did not have Jonah's heart. Now, if you've been with us these past two weeks, you know I've been pretty hard on Jonah for the last couple weeks. And, and it's not going to change, actually, because this week and next week we're going to see Jonah is not really a hero in this story. But in fairness to Jonah, I totally understand his protest. I totally get why he did not want to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to go and preach this particular message. And it comes down to the reality that his protest, his big issue, is that he firmly believes that the wicked people deserve punishment. The wicked deserve punishment. They don't deserve to be forgiven. Like, like there are tons of psalms and proverbs and country music songs that are written about this very thing. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do nice guys finish last type, type of ideas? These are thoughts that are similar to things that we've all probably thought or done ourselves at some time in our lives. Where we know or we encounter a person at work or school or, or somewhere in our community who, who's just mean-spirited. Perhaps from how we understand God's will for us to live, we look at them and they go, but they're living such a sinful lifestyle. 
Why are they prospering? Why is he always so popular? Why does she always get the promotion? Why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't God take, get them to take notice that they're living contrary to him? Why doesn't he do something to get their attention the way he's been getting my attention when I slip up a little bit? I understand Jonah's protest. I understand it. But here's the thing. Judgments like that are often based upon a simple equation. A simple equation of good begets good. Therefore, logically, it assumes that bad should beget bad. And if you read the Bible, especially the first five books of the Bible, it kind of reads that way. After all, the first five books of the Bible is referred to as the law. Those, that's what it's called. It's the Torah. It's the law. And that was a common approach of how people approached our interactions with one another and with God. Is that if you do the good things, you get good. If you do the bad, you will get bad. This was so common even in the day of Jesus, to the point where a teacher of the law, a teacher of the law, came to Jesus one day and asked him, Teacher, of all the laws that exist, what is the most important one? Now, this is a rare occasion when a Pharisee or a teacher of the law would come to Jesus and was not trying to trick him. This was a genuine question he wanted to ask because, see, he wasn't referring to the Ten Commandments. He wasn't saying which of the Ten Commandments is the most important. See, what had happened is over the, over the generations, the Pharisees had developed what amounted to 613 thou shalts and thou shalt nots. Now, 613 laws, as we know, it is impossible for any person to regularly, continually abide by all 613. So this is a logical question. The idea behind this question is, if I can understand what the biggest one, what the most important one is, and if I can own and master that one, I'm probably doing okay. And here's how Jesus responded to him. He said, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. The greatest command we see here is love. Love. First of all, a love that involves our whole being towards God. A love that, that means that our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength is all focused towards God. So that all of you, the thoughts that you have in your head, the attitudes and passions in your heart, the, the works of your hands, or where your feet take you to, the things that your lips allow you to utter are all done as an expression, as an utterance unto God for love for him. It is also built upon, finds its source in God's love for his people. The idea being that our lives are to mirror God's heart. Which leads Jesus to the follow-up command. Jesus says you should have love for others. Because a natural outgrowth, if, if we are being changed and motivated and impassioned by God's love, a natural outgrowth of that is love for others. See, a love that is not based upon another person's worthiness. And not based upon love that they have earned and therefore we grant to them. A love that comes from the fact that we are commanded to love by God. And we are to love others as he loves them. Why? Not because of their worthiness, but because they were created in his image. All humanity. All people. 
regardless of who they are, what they've done, what they believe, where they're at in their lives, are image bearers of God, therefore have value, therefore are loved. This is one of God's great causes that we see in the call of Jonah, the reconciliation of all people, even the people who are wicked in Nineveh. You see, if we only look at the letter of the law, we miss this. If we look at the letter of the law, we miss our ability to understand the heart of the law. And the heart of the law is that God gives these commands to us in order to draw people to him so they can find him, so they can know they're lost and find their way back to a path towards him. It's not enough for God to just have a person's attention. It's not enough for him to just have a person's obedience. You can have your attention, your obedience, and just follow the letter of the law. See, God wants a person's heart as well. Jonah had good theology. We saw that last week. He prayed a lot of good things. He knew who God was. He had a lot of good theology. He faithfully served. He did a lot of good things. At 50 years, he was a prophet. And, and there's this little challenging part in here, but we can assume that for most of those 50 years, he faithfully served and obeyed God. But in this particular moment, he has no compassion for the broken. He has no compassion for the lost. It's a challenge for us as well. Like when, when we read the Great Commission, for example, where Jesus commands followers, his followers, to go and to make disciples of all nations. It's a challenge for us as well to say, do I see that as, a, as an option? Or do I understand it's a command that comes from the very heart of God? That comes from one of his greatest causes, which is to try to reconcile all people unto himself. And he sends us forth as ambassadors to do that as well. And if we're going to do that, we have to go to Nineveh sometimes in order to be successful in that call. Well, Jonah does go to Nineveh this time. And after a long journey from where he gets dropped off on the shore 500 miles into the city of Nineveh, he arrives at this very large and in this very important city. It's not just an important city to the region. We can actually tell this far into the story, it's a very important city to God too. He's gone a lot of steps to make sure that they hear his message clearly these people are important to God. Now, it's believed that Nineveh is the largest city in the world at the time. Uh, at the, the, the main city was considered to be eight miles around, and then greater Nineveh was considered to be 60 miles in circumference around. A massive city that had over 120,000 people living in it, which may not seem too impressive by today's standards, but back then it was unheard of. So large, in fact, that there are skeptics who believe that no city of Nineveh actually existed. But then it was actually discovered. It was discovered by Sir Austin Henry Laird in the mid-1800s. He was a British archaeologist. And he confirmed the existence and the size of Nineveh. And here's what we read, is that when Jonah arrived in Nineveh, he began by going a day's journey into the city and proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Such a succinct message. Eight words. In Hebrew, it's actually five words. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. 
Some probably wish I could be that effective in my preaching. That'd be awesome. 30-second sermons, everyone repents, new life's being had by everybody. We just go home and watch the Eskimos game. It would be, it'd be awesome. Well, his words are few, but his meaning actually is deep. And, and as happens, when we translate things to English, we lose some of the meaning at times. And, and there's a little bit lost in context, lost in translation here as well. You see, the word overturned that we see in his, or overthrown in some translations, that we see in this message he gives to them, is from the Hebrew word hapak. It has two meanings. One, this idea of overturning can be understood to be a warning, to destroy. I'm going to overturn something. A catastrophe is about to come upon you. It can also carry a second meaning. It can also mean a promise to overturn a person's life. Where you're going to turn your life around, overthrow your life to a new direction, a turning point, and you'll experience new life. You'll have new beginnings. So Jonah essentially preaches a two-edged message that was not lost on his audience. And his message would sound something like this. You have 40 days to turn your life around or the Lord my God will bring a catastrophe upon you. So there's a warning in there. But there's also... As so often happens when God reaches out to a person, a warning, but also a sense of hope, a living hope, a true hope that we can turn towards. Now, it didn't take long because we're told that immediately they believed that this message was from God. They declared a fast, they put on sackcloth, and, and these are all symbols of, of, of repentance. You see, to fast is to go into a period of time of not eating. And it's a means of where we deprive ourselves of one thing. We give up one thing that we need in order to seek out something greater. So in this case of giving up food to seek out God's mercy. And then putting on sackcloth was, was a, a form of humility. Where you would take off your regular clothes and you would put on these coarse woven fabrics, often made out of goat hair. And they were itchy and they were scratchy. I don't know how goats wear that stuff. But it was itchy and scratchy. It's like wearing a burlap sack, essentially, they would walk around in. And these were traditional symbols of submission and repentance. Now, does it strike anybody else, odd, or is it just me? That this great, massive, powerful city of Nineveh would believe an Israelite man who is their enemy so quickly. Is, is that strike anybody else as being kind of odd and strange? Like a stranger walks into your town square, he says eight words, and based upon those eight words, you are willing to abandon your gods, abandon your religious practices, flip your way of life on its head, and you are riddled with fear. A stranger walks into town center, eight words, and that is the impact that happens. You know, the event and the outcome has led many scholars to speculate there's more going on here than we would pick up in just a, a basic reading of this. And in fact, there's perhaps some insight from further research and excavations that have been done at this site that has been found in the city of Nineveh. You see, in addition to the Bible, there are a long history of, of examples of stories of this account of Jonah coming, the long history of a prophet named Jonah in the region. For example, 
as they were excavating the city of Nineveh and the surrounding area, they came across two local sites that they were digging at. And I'm going to totally do these names inappropriately. I'm sorry, Arya, for mispronouncing these um, Mideastern names. But one site called Kayunjik, another one called Nabi Yanus, which are the traditional local names for these two sites. Yabi Yanus translates to the prophet Jonah. In addition to that, research has found that one of their primary gods that they worshipped was a fish god. A fish god by the name of Dagon. Now, in addition to that, they've also found writings from a Babylonian priest and historian named Barossus, who wrote of a mythical creature named Oannes, who, according to Barossus, emerged from the sea to give divine wisdom to men. Scholars generally identify this mysterious fish man as an avatar of their Babylonian water god. Oh, and by the way, that name Onas that he speaks of, that translates to the word Jonah. So, what this 3rd century B.C. historian was basically writing is that a fish man named Jonah who emerged from the sea to give divine wisdom to the Assyrian capital city of Nineveh. Now imagine. Imagine you live in this city at the time, and you worship an aquatic god by the name of Dagon. And into your town walks Jonah. His hair and his skin have been bleached white from being in the digestive acids of a fish for three days. The smell of fish arrives 30 seconds before he does. There are people following him, telling of this great story of how a great fish vomited him onto the land, and then he came proclaiming a word of warning to your city. There's great reason to believe that you would listen very, very intently to what he had to say. In fact, all of this has led the Journal of Biblical Literature to say, what better heralding as a divinely sent messenger to Nineveh could Jonah have had than to be thrown up out of the mouth of a great fish in the presence of witnesses and where the fish god was a favorite object of worship. You see, it's, I find it very fascinating how this incredible story finds regular confirmation in, in, in archaeology. And how also we can look at this and see how God's divinely appointed aspects of the story add such incredible depth and plausibility to what we are seeing and reading here. I find it absolutely amazing. Well, news of all this commotion that this is causing reaches the king. And the king has the power to stop it, or the king has the power to turn and make this official. And we read this in verse 6. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he took off his royal robes, and he covered himself in sackcloth and sat in the dust. Whatever impact Jonah had upon the citizens, it extends to the king. The king who is in the seat of power and authority. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, repentance is this idea of giving up something to gain something else of greater value. In this particular case, they are seeking to gain the favor of God. And we see in this simple verse a great royal exchange is taking place as the king humbles himself and comes under the authority of the Lord. He rose and vacated his throne and he sat in submission in the dust. 
he took off his robes that designated his authority, and he put on humble sackcloth. All expressions of in the flesh what he knows in his spirit, that he is sinful, he is unworthy, that he needs to be saved. After doing this public expression himself, he goes a step further and he issues a decree that makes the fast official and actually intensifies it a step further. We read in 7, 8, and 9. Then he issued a proclamation to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered in sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways. And their violence. Who knows? Maybe God yet will relent and have compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. The fast is already taking place in the city of Nineveh, but this is expanded in two ways. First of all, a typical fast just involves food, abstaining from food for a period of time, but is expanded to include water, which is a very severe additional step. You have to imagine we are in the heart of modern day Iraq where this is taking place. It is hot. They have no food and no water. It is a severe elimination of those things from a person's body. And usually, the effect of the urgency, this is communicating the effect of the urgency that's taking place, because he also expands it to include livestock, to include no food, no water. Now, a usual fast will last up to 40 days, which is a long time, especially in the heat of the desert to go without any food or water. And you wouldn't have to go more than one day before the outcry from the people and particularly from the cattle would just fill the region. But he adds a critically important step here. While you are fasting, pray and give up your evil ways. That's critical. Because as we've seen in Jonah, it is possible to give God your attention, your obedience, but to not give him your heart. Likewise, you can choose to fast. You can choose to put on sackcloth, but not actually repent of anything. But as you're fasting, they're commanded to pray. They're commanded to acknowledge that they have gone in evil directions and to give those things up. They're commanded to take the step of authentic hapak, of overthrowing. This authentic step of overthrowing their way of life and to turn their hearts to the Lord. Well, God sees their actions, and he sees the genuineness of what they've been doing and what's taking place, and he has compassion upon them. We find in verse 10, it says, when God saw that they, what they did and how they turned from the evil ways, he had compassion, and he did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. Now, at the end of chapter 3, the story has progressed now to the point where Nineveh repents, and God relents but Jonah resents. Nineveh repents. God relents. Jonah still resents. He has suspected all along that God would move to compassion for the evil Ninevites. That has been the subject of his protest from the very beginning. But we'll deal with Jonah specifically next week in chapter 4. So you've got to come back for that one. For today. As we conclude chapter 3, I want to focus upon the fact that God's judgment, God's judgment always implies the possibility 
God's judgment always includes his desire to show mercy and forgiveness to people. You see, just as Jonah walked his own path, a path of his own choosing, just as he, he <clears throat> took himself away from God's will, all of us do the exact same thing. Different ways, different situations, different examples of that. But, but the word of Isaiah in chapter 53 is true. It says, all of us are like sheep. All of us have wandered off. We, we've all gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way at some point in some time in some way of our own choosing. This waywardness is referred to as sin. We look at the New Testament, we see the word sin. They, they, the word there is hamartia, which is like an archery term that refers to missing the mark. Just as if you were to take a bow and arrow and you were to pull that back and release the arrow, your intention is to hit the bullseye. But as so often happens, our aim's off. The arrow wavers to the side. It, it goes astray. It misses the mark is the concept being conveyed here. Sometimes we hit the bullseye. Sometimes we have very good days and we hit the bullseye a bunch of times. But all of us on a regular basis miss. We miss the mark. That's why in Romans 3 it has another truth that we're all familiar with if we if we acknowledge this, is that for we have all sinned. There is no one who is excluded from this. All people have sinned and have fallen short, have, have missed the mark of God's glory, of that bullseye, of his will, of his desire in our lives, of, of the how we interact with one another and how we show that, that love for God with our whole self and the outflowing of our love for one another. We've, we've missed the mark on those ways. All of us have. Now, we have different ways of dealing with this in our lives. Some people will just simply reject God's target altogether. Some people will say, well, I'll just create my own target. It's hard to miss your own target. If you make the bullseye really big and you stick it right here, I can never miss the target. So they reject God's bullseye, and they create a target of their own making. Other people will say, well, perhaps, perhaps I'll just stop shooting altogether. I'll just, I'll just take myself out of the game and just tell myself there is no target. There is no such thing as a target. And some of these attempts to solve the problem work for the short term. But it doesn't change the fact that, that God has established a standard. God has established a law. He has established a target that all people are created and called to strive towards. It's just other ways of falling short and going wayward. You know, John wrote a few letters to some churches that he had started and was discipling. And one in particular he wrote that was struggling with some of these similar issues that people were questioning sin. You know, you know have I sinned? Does my sin matter? You know, can I create my own targets? People were saying things like that. They're saying, well, well, maybe I haven't sinned, or maybe my sin doesn't make a difference at all. And so John wrote one letter in particular to them, knowing that it did matter, that, that there was a standard, knowing that God loves all people and wants them to come into fellowship with him, with one another, based upon his love and his standard. He knew that their sin mattered. It mattered enough that Jesus Christ gave his life to die for to pay the price for missing the mark, to create a way that all people could be forgiven of those sins. And he writes this in, in 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9, when he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all righteousness. You see, by the letter of the law, everyone has sinned. Everyone is unworthy of God's mercy and forgiveness. That has not changed from the beginning till now. And to the point where a person can't live by a target of their own creation. Because if they do, a pack in terms of a catastrophe will come upon them. But we also read that God demonstrated his love for us in this. That while we were still wayward, while we were still in sin, Christ died for us. And in so doing, he made a way for us to have the penalty of our sins no longer held against us. So that no matter how great your sin may be, God's heart, God's love, God's mercy, God's forgiveness is greater than your sin. No matter how far or how long you may have been wayward for, God has never taken his eye off of you, and he has never stopped loving you. No matter how resistant a person may be or, or how many times they may have said no to God, he has never stopped pursuing them and saying yes to them. To repent means to come to a turning point in a person's life. And it begins with that first initial time that we acknowledge, yes, I have missed the mark and it matters. Yes, I have sinned and I am not able to solve that problem myself. And to confess that to God, to receive his grace, to receive his mercy, to receive his forgiveness. And that can be expressed in a person as they sit in their car, as they sit in their office, as they sit in the pew of this church right now even. By saying the words, thank you, Lord, for giving up your life for me. Thank you for giving your life upon the cross to pay the price for my sins. Jesus, as you gave your life for me, I give you mine. If that is something you need to do, something perhaps that you have just done, there are prayer people at the front who want to meet with you following the service and talk more with you about what it means to take first steps in your journey to discover that life is better with Jesus. But at that moment, we are no longer defined by sin. We're no longer defined by our misses. We're defined by Jesus' perfect works. We're no longer controlled by sin. We will still mess up, though. We'll still be prone to wander. There's no better example of this, actually, than of King David. King David, who was a man who was said that he was a man after God's own heart. God had his heart. Not just his attention, not just obedience. God had his heart as well. And yet he sinned. I don't just mean in small stuff. Yeah, he, there's, there's accounts of him lying, absolutely. But, but bigger stuff than that, bigger stuff than that, stuff that many of us here will never do by the grace of God. He was guilty of, of like adultery and murder as well. But after he sinned, he was truly repentant. And he came to a genuine turning point in his life. And the greatest example of him expressing this turning point is found in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, where he acknowledged his wrongdoing. He acknowledged his guilt. He came to a moment of changing course and seeking God's forgiveness. So I just want to close this time for us. By reading for you sections of Psalm 51. As you bow your heads and, and listen to these words, if there's something in your life that you have yet to confess, that you know has been weighing heavy upon you, perhaps this prayer can be your prayer this day. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. 
wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, Lord, and you alone have I sinned. I've, I've done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict. You are right and you are justified when you judge. Create in me a pure heart, O Lord. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. But restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, but my sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart that you, God, will never despise.